John writes, Then I looked, and behold, like, wow, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with them 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder. So he's on the earth seeing this, but he hears this. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And Father, this morning, as we consider our own act of redemption, Lord, of how you've redeemed us by the precious blood of the Lamb. Oh God, may your word find good soil in our hearts this morning that, Lord, your word would penetrate our hearts. That we would leave the, from this place changed people, either in love with Jesus for the very first time or more in love with Jesus. As your word impacts our hearts and takes root in that good soil of our lives. So Lord, please bless our time here this morning. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, two things right here in the very beginning in chapter, in chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked and behold, there was two things that caught his attention. Certainly, whenever we see that word behold, we should stop and like, wow, there's something coming or there's something that we're going to see. And John sees a lamb standing on Mount Zion. That would be Jerusalem. So he sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion or Jerusalem and with him, the 144,000 Jewish Billy Graham evangelists having his father's name written on their heads. So besides the sight of the lamb, which was, I'm sure, totally amazing to John, John sees the 144,000 from chapter 7. Remember that chapter 7 before the, the, anything happened? God said, we're going to mark these people so nothing can happen to them. Remember them? 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, God's Jewish servants chosen by God to be his witness during this seven-year tribulation period on this earth. So notice, please, they started with 144,000 seven years ago, and now here they are, seven years later, after walking literally through hell on this earth, they ended up with, someone say it, 144,000. They don't end up with 143,999. They ended up with 144,000. Someone had to account them. Someone had to have counted it. So why did they not lose one man through all this turmoil that's been going on in the earth in the last seven years? Simple. And this should encourage us. They were sealed by God. They're sealed by God. If you look back at chapter 7, you'll be reminded that the seal of God was placed on their foreheads and no one was able to harm them. And so their very presence here on Mount Zion, their lives are a testimony not only of God's love and power, but also his promise to you and to me. Because what God promises to you and me, he's going to deliver just like he promised these. Hey, you're going, to, you're going to be my witnesses. No one can harm you. And here we are at the end of the worst period of the world's history. They dropped the nuclear bomb on them. Yeah, didn't phase them. Because they had the mark of God on them. And so here they are. They're able to finish their mission. 
because they had the seal and promise from God to them that nothing would or could harm them. And it's the same for you and me. We've got to know that. Here they are. They're standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb of God. And why? Because they won. Because they endured. Because they triumphed over the beast. And why? Well, again, it goes because God had marked them at the beginning of their journey to go the distance. God had marked them at the beginning of their journey to accomplish his will. Man, I hope that does something for you. You think about your own lives, how God marks you to where you're going to accomplish his will, where you're going to go the distance. It should do something in our hearts. See, if, for instance, my son was taken home early, yeah, because his mission was accomplished. Brian was taken home early because his mission was accomplished. See, nobody goes home until their mission's accomplished. I hope we can rest in that. See, when the Lord seals us, he saves us, and if he saves us, he knows how to keep us. And that's why you don't have to worry about it. That's why he gave us a finished salvation at the beginning, because he knows none of us are going to be able to finish our own salvation. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 12, let me read it to you. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses of God's men and women from the Old Testament that we've watched God use as we've traveled through the Old Testament. Since we're surrounded by this great cloud of Old and New Testament, Old Testament saints of men and women who did crazy things for God, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God finishes it. Yes, we're called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who works in me and works through me to accomplish his goodwill. And nobody's going to hinder that. And so John hears this voice from heaven as John's looking at Jesus on Mount Zion. And it was like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder, as he literally hears the voice of God while he's standing in the very presence of God. Crazy. Enough for God. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. So he's standing there. He's looking at Jesus, who is God the Son. He's standing there with the 144,000. He hears the voice of God in heaven, and then he hears these notes drifting from the harps. These notes drifting from heaven, it seems. And they, the 144,000, sang on Mount Zion, as it were, a new song before the throne. And so, I mean, grasp this when we worship. Here they are, their feet are firmly planted on this earth, but their hearts and their voice take them to heaven. And it's heard in heaven. Team, that's why we worship. You know, we just don't sing songs in the air. To the non-believer, it's like, hey, who are you guys singing to? Uh, just the air. Oh, wow, that seems stupid. No, when we sing, our voice literally carries all the way up to the presence of God. The Bible says that Jesus inhabits the praises of his people. And so here we are, we get a picture of it. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. No, they're on the earth on Mount Zion. No, but their, their, their words and their, and their hearts, they went up and they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. 
as they stand in Jerusalem and their hearts in worship are heard in heaven. Man, I like that. I hope you like that. Hope you can see that. It's very graphic. It's very clear here as we just let the details speak for themselves. Now, I hope we can understand that God is able to save mankind out of tribulation. That's the, the rapture. But we see here that God is also able to preserve mankind through the tribulation. And that's consistent with the scriptures, though. Daniel was delivered from the fiery furnace. Rakshak and Benny, they were delivered through it, met Jesus in the midst of the fire. Enoch was delivered from the flood. Noah was delivered through it. Lot was delivered from God's judgment, but Joseph was delivered through it. The church is going to be delivered from the tribulation period, but these 144,000 Jews who had rejected Jesus' offer prior to the rapture and then turned to him after the rapture and they're sealed by God, well, they're delivered through it. Look at the last phrase here, verse 3. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. This tells us the tribulation period is over, even though the book's not over. Please don't miss that. I mean, we're going to see all the way down through this. Game over, game over, game over, even though we still have many chapters to go. And so you need to understand, as we move forward, we're going to backtrack and add in some details. This tells us it's over. Jesus is on Mount Sinai. That's a dead giveaway. It's over. And he's come back. And as we view all of these details here, this teaches me that God kept his word to them. I, I hope we all go to sleep every night with that thought in our hearts and minds as well, that God keeps his word to us. That every promise that God has made to you, God keeps to you. There's not one that he doesn't. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. They're good for you today. They're good for you tonight. They're real. He will, he will keep you. He's going to see you through to the other side. you got to know that. you got to be able to rest in that. Whether I'm getting knee surgery, brain tumor, lose a child, cancer, hospitalization, whatever it is, our God is going to keep us until the day he takes us home. And then the day he takes us home, you ain't going to fight that anyway because he's taking us home. And that's why we get a rest. You know, maybe today you feel like you're in the midst of a trial or tribulation that it just seems to never go away. Please, you need to look up. And you need to understand that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And as you look up, you see that Jesus is right there in the midst of the trial. And he's going to look out over you. The Bible says if you lack wisdom in that place, look up and ask God and he will give it to you. He will give you the wisdom in the midst of the trial. Rather than you trying to figure it out, you look up and it's like, Lord, what do I do? And you listen and then you do. That's what happened here. And God delivers you through them or God delivers you out of them. You know, don't be overwhelmed. Jesus said, take, your yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. As one of God's kids, we should never be overwhelmed. We can be only because we're trying to manage life. And then we should be overwhelmed, and that makes us realize, oh, what am I doing? And then we cast our cares to the Lord and leave them there. And we look up, and we start to walk victoriously. You want to see Jesus in the midst of the trials as you look up and allow him to deliver you through them. That, that you too, like these 144,000, might sing a new song in your heart and be carried away to heaven as you sing because you realize, man, God is totally 
absolutely and completely faithful and capable to meet you in every single trial you'll ever face. See, the only difficulty in that is when I look up but I allow my emotions to get in the way. See, my God has his plan, but they can become short-circuited by emotions, by what I feel and by what I think, rather than by what God has written and what God has said. Christian, as, as those who have the, the Spirit of God living in them, that would make you born again, who are looking for the return of Jesus Christ, no matter what you face over and over. The heart has to be in the place that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good, no matter what you're going through on this earth. It's the key to victorious Christian living. Remember Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16? I do. Last time we taught that was on May 1st, 2011. They're in jail. They're not looking for sympathy from man. They've been unjustly judged and arrested. They've been beaten just for being there. And so they throw them in the inner dungeon. They're shackled down in the bottom where the waste would flow down into the bottom of the prison. And they're singing a new song in their midnight hour. They weren't singing trying to get God to do something. They sang simply because God was good to them all the time. And all the time God is good to us. So if you find yourself in a place where you don't understand, you've got to look up like these 144,000. And everything comes into perspective. But if you look at your, if I look at myself and try and figure it out, I dig a deeper hole. But when I look up, oh, I see what I was doing. It's critical. It's critical. Now, both the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses say these 144,000 here are their members. Really? Well, right from the get-go, one of them's wrong, right? We know both of them are, but we should just let them debate it out. But they say these here described in verses 4 and 5 are their members. They're not Jews. You know, if you ever hear someone say that, it's never going to cause them to turn to Jesus, I don't think. I don't know, maybe you work with someone and they just kind of, they're always throwing little things at you. If they say that, ask them if any of these 144,000 are women or family men. And they're going to promptly and proudly say, oh yeah, 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 there's married men in there, there's women in there. Well then let's test their answer based upon the scriptures here in verse 4. And we get a description of who these 144,000 are. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Okay, I'm pretty sure they didn't have health class when I went to school. If they did, I don't remember it. But it's pretty hard to be a family man and have children and still be a virgin. Now, if, if you don't understand that, talk to your parents. They haven't had the talk with you yet. You get it all figured out. Well, wait a second. Mr. Colt, remember, you just told me that you have family men in this group. Well, look, it says right here, they, they, they're virgins. How could they have had father and children? These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, not women, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. Huh. Cults are wrong again. But let me say this. Them being wrong will never save them. 
you and I, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, we have got to be able to clearly articulate the simple gospel to them, for it's the power of God and the salvation. Debating out people, being right in an argument or a debate, it's never going to get them into the kingdom. But clearly being able to articulate the gospel, oh yeah, God's going to work through that. Verse 5, speaking of the 144,000, and in their mouth was found no deceit. Why? Well, because they're without fault before the throne of God. And how did they get that way? Well, they were redeemed from the, by the Lamb. That's capital L. That's how you and I will be in heaven as well, church. When Jesus Christ presents me to the Father, I will be without fault. Why? Because he's already washed me and he's already washed you of your sin and guilt by the precious blood of the Lamb. That's how we get there. And then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. Because remember last chapter, it was fear the beast. Fear God and give glory to him, not the beast. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him, don't worship the devil, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, how the angel carries this out, we're not even going to entertain some of the silly ideas that people believe here. Why can't we just let God speak for himself and keep it as an angel flying in the midst of heaven? That'd be simple. I mean, if we can worship on this earth and our worship arises to heaven and God hears it, I'm pretty certain that God can have one angel fly around the world and proclaim the everlasting gospel. I don't think that's complicated. And so God's sending in this angel to preach the everlasting gospel. That's the heart of Christmas right here. It is. I hope you can see that. I mean, why did God take on and become a baby born of a virgin in Bethlehem and end up in a feeding trough? And that's a dirty feeding trough. Not the nice little sterile ones we have. Why did he do that? Because God is a God of love. See, God became man and took on a human form, the Christmas story, because that's the heart of Christmas, where God gave so man could be redeemed. And see, God wants to see all of his creation redeemed. He's written that. And now he has actions to back it up. See, he not only writes things, but then he proves it with his actions. And so he sends this angel. Because he doesn't want these that have been blaspheming him cursing him. He doesn't want them to end up that way. So he sends them an angel. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he took on human form and, and gave his only begotten son, who is God in the flesh. He who has seen me has seen the Father, Philip. That's what Jesus said to him. That whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, that is love demonstrated in action form as Jesus went to the cross for us. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, God became man, born of a virgin, 33 years later died in our place. That's the Christmas story. See, Jesus was born to die. That was always his mission. It's the Christmas story. It's the heart of Christmas. It's love demonstrated in action form. God humbling himself. I mean, think about it. God humbling himself, taking that form of a human so that you and I could be redeemed, saved from our sins, saved from a devil's hell. 
And so God now sends this angel. It's the heart of the Christmas. He, 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 sends, he goes out after them. God has no desire that any should die. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Unless he sent his only son to die and rise again in our place. Unless he sends you and me, his church, out into this world so that none may perish. That's our mission. We're under commission to go out. And when we're gone, God's not limited to the 144,000 that are going to go out and preach the gospel to all those that are left in the world at this time. No, he also sends out his angels to prove to his world that God is indeed a God of love. He didn't have to. Certainly these that are left on the earth, man, there's no good qualities there to redeem, but God's nature and character is love. And so he sends this first angel to proclaim the way of salvation for those who are lost. But he also sends his first angel to fulfill the words of Jesus. I want you to look at it. You can make a footnote on it. Matthew chapter 24. Please just flip back there for just a second. Crack your Bible in half. Flip the right side in half and you're going to end up right in Matthew. That's what I learned from my denominational upbringing. How to find the New Testament. Look at Matthew 24, verse 14. Jesus speaking. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's a great cross-reference to verse 6 and 7 of Revelation chapter 14, where God's going to be the one who's going to fulfill the words of Jesus to where everyone in the world will have heard the gospel. See, God doesn't need man or man's mission organizations to accomplish his purposes. God himself becomes a sending agency, and he sends his angel here with his final gospel message, and then the end will come. Now, that does not mean we should just be lazy and not preach the gospel. Because, hey, after all, God's got an angel. You know, everybody that's left, they'll get a shot by the angel. Oh, no, no, no. We're under authority to preach the gospel today. So let's learn from this gospel message. Some commentators I read said, well, this is different because, well, it's a sense of urgency. I don't buy that. It should always be a sense of urgency because you could die tomorrow. You need to turn to Jesus today. There's a sense of urgency. So let's notice the gospel message this angel is proclaiming in verse 7. Fear God. But why? Give glory to him. But why? And then the angel answers both right here. For the hour of his judgment has come. See, either at Jesus' return or your own personal death, if Jesus Christ is not the reigning Lord over your life, God's going to judge you. And you will never make it into heaven. Now, if you're planning on getting into heaven based upon your good works, like many people are around this part of the world, then you've got to answer the age-old question. If you're planning on getting to heaven because you're a good person or because you have good works, if you could get into heaven based upon your good works, then why did Jesus have to die for your sin if you could get in based upon being good? 
See, the cross declares men are good, not one. And even though you may be thinking you're going to try and get in based upon your good works, and I am positive you probably are a better person than me, but to get in by your works, you have to be perfect. Like, you've never, ever done anything wrong. See, Jesus fully understood what sin had done to his creation. Jesus understood that sin had corrupted his creation. If you need proof, go to a cemetery. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's death. Sin has so corrupted the human race that it brings about death, and 100 out of every 100 surveyed are going to die. Except for the guy that gets frozen in the crypto cryo thing, but he's only deceived. He's already dead. See, I know how you can live and never die. I know how you can bypass God's judgment. And see, we the church must understand that the gospel is not simply a way of helping people feel better about themselves or helping people to get their life in order. No, the true gospel brings sinners to God. But in order for that to happen, someone has to speak to them. Here in our passage, the angel is preaching the gospel that brings salvation and the judgment of God all at the same time. Both a good news team. Now, in order to fear God and give God glory, you have to turn from you being the authority over your life, and you've got to turn to God. The Bible calls that repent. So you've got to take yourself off the throne of your life, of you being the one calling the shots, of you being the one in charge of your life, and you've got to turn to God. Because all of a sudden you're awakened to your need that your sin is separating you from God. Your sin is never going to get you into heaven. And then as you turn to God, because your heart is, is calling out, yes, I believe, that brings life change to you. It has to. And here in verse 7, the proof of that life change taking place in their lives is they will worship God. They were blaspheming, and now they're worshiping. Prior to the angel coming out, they were cursing God. So for my faith to be genuine, there will always be life change in each one of us. Now the message this angel preaches is the same one that we see consistent in the Bible. It's not a separate message. Paul's gospel to King Agrippa, an unsaved man, a king, this would be like preaching to President Trump, was he should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. That was the message of, of, of Paul's day and age. That's still got to be the message of our day and age. Repent. Take yourself off the throne. Recognize your need. Turn to God because you believe in what Jesus did for you as he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And then ask Jesus to dwell in your life, to dwell in your heart. Ask him to be the new Lord, to be the master. And when that transaction takes place in that moment of time within a human heart, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I mean, that's the gospel. And now you, you live your life doing those works that are befitting true repentance. That's our gospel team. You know, the crazy thought in all of this is either on this earth or at the judgment, everyone is going to bow and give glory to Jesus Christ. Everyone. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, as Paul writes, speaking of Jesus, 
Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That would be every and every. So if you fear God, you will bow now. If you don't fear God, you will when you stand in front of him, but you'll be cast into hell with no one to blame but yourself. We know from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so as his first angel says to these earth dwellers in the last days, fear God. It's critical. Look at your own salvation. Think about the time when you said, yes, not, not when you prayed some prayer, but Jesus wasn't the Lord of your life. But that time when Jesus Christ became the Lord of your life, I can guarantee you the fear of God was somewhere present in that equation, moving you to the grace of God. It was there. The fear of God was awakening something in you about your need for a Savior. When I come to the realization that, that my sin is separating me from God, my sin that keeps me from grabbing a hold of what Jesus has for me, that fear of separation from God moves me to answer the Holy Spirit calling upon my heart to turn to Jesus. And see, that's what saves me. But a gospel that falls short of bringing man to fear God, like we see in our text here, well, then that's a watered-down gospel with no power. Now, just to be clear, I don't use the words fear God like the angel here. God does that as a man hears the truth from our lips. There's something that takes place within their lives as we share the gospel. As something all of a sudden is awakened within a person and they realize, oh, I'm lost. Yeah, fear of God is just going to push them to Jesus where they receive his grace and his mercy problem in the church today is the church has lost sight of the fear of God. You know, that's why the church does what it wants to do, however they want to do it. But the fear of God was essential in our salvation. The fear of God has got to be essential in our lives as believers, because that way we're under the authority of the one who died for us and rose again from the dead. Lose sight of that? You live life any way you want. When the Holy Ghost enlightens a heart that they are lost without hope, and they need to turn to Jesus, that fear of being lost in their hearts prompts them to respond to God's love and grace. And see, that's why some believe. Because they're accosted with that fear of God, and all of a sudden, oh, they make, they got to make that decision. Yes, tell me how to be saved. Tell me how to be forgiven. And others say, no, nope, not interested. When I read in my Bible on December 15, 1983, these words in Luke 11, let me read them to you. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. When I saw what God was capable of doing or allowing, Allowing me to be worse than I was? That was a healthy fear of God that drove me to go to Calvary Chapel, Spokane every day until I figured out what those people had. And I did. But it drove me. 
less than 24 hours of God grabbing my attention in Luke 11. He asked me if I was going to serve him or this junk in my car. And see, it started over here. But that was a no-brainer over here. Chuck the junk. Looking back on it, I had a healthy fear of God moving in my life before I said to Jesus, and I suggest to you, so did you. If you look back at it. The church, all of us, had better have a healthy fear of God in our lives today, or we're not going to make it to the finish line. We already have read that in the last days, many will fall away from the faith. Why? Because they had no fear of God in their life. Many will be caught up and life will become all about them and they'll be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and having a form of godliness and be denying his power. Why? Because they have no fear of God in their life. We can read all about it, 2 Timothy 3 and 4. You know, there's a lot of gospels being preached out there today. But the church must proclaim the ones that we see in the book of Acts. Certainly the messages that are in the book of Acts should be a part of our lives today. Look at the first message preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. You know, Peter's been going on for like some 30 plus verses and he wraps up with these words. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And as that fear of God settled into their heart, as they realized, oh, we crucified the Messiah. It says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? There's a healthy fear of God there. If you look at just the words that the early church used, those words that are recorded for us to see in the book of Acts, you will be shocked. For starters, Jesus shows up 63 times, the word Jesus. Add in the personal pronouns, hundreds. Add in Christ and the Messiah, hundreds. So the early church wasn't afraid to talk about Jesus. Whereas forgive and forgives, double goose egg. Those words don't even show up in the book of Acts. Forgive and forgiveness shows up four times. Hey, come to Jesus. He'll forgive you of all of your sin. That wasn't their message. But it's true. Whereas the word repent shows up 11 times. 11 times. Hey, you need to repent. What's that mean? You need to turn away from you being the Lord of your life. Turn to Jesus. You don't pray a prayer and keep, pray a prayer of asking Jesus in your heart and keep living your life this way. It doesn't work that way. You've got to turn. And when you turn to Jesus, the Bible says the veil is removed and all of a sudden you see life clearly. But you've got to repent. When you repent and turn to Jesus and do works in response to your new faith, you then become God's property. But even as God's property, I will stumble, I will fall, and I will get dirty. But he cleans me up. And he sets me on my feet again and again that I might finish my race that he's marked out before me. Then another angel, verse 8, followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The second angel is declaring the world system has totally collapsed. The economic system, the religious system is totally wiped out. We'll get into that when we get into chapter 17 and 18, because that, 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 those chapters deal with this. Verse 9, then a third angel followed them. And again, this is all love to you. Please, there's no way you can miss that. 
And this third angel follows, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast. Now, please understand. Here, eyes up here. When, when we read about the mark of the beast and all that taking place, I can guarantee you that when that whole beast system comes online, here, you got to take the mark of the beast today, I can guarantee you that's the same time this angel went out. You know, the, the mark of the beast system didn't come online and then God waited six months to send this angel out. Oh, sorry, those of you who never were told, oh, you're lost for eternity. That's not the God we serve. So even though we're reading this after chapter 13, where the whole mark of the beast thing comes online, please know, we're backtracking. And here comes this angel with a very loud voice as it carries out all across the world. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Not diluted. You're not going to get a second chance. But if you take of this, and this, certainly this is fear of God stuff here, if you take of this, if you receive the mark, you're going to receive the high power octane judgment of God. Look what it says. He shall be tormented. The pain will be real for all of eternity. He, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like fun. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. If you take this mark, this is what awaits you. That's what the angel's going to be proclaiming as the beast system comes online. If you take this mark, this is what you will be facing. Yes, you'll be in the presence of the Lamb, but you will not be facing his love. You'll be facing his judgment and punishment for your sin because you chose not to choose his. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. It will never end. There is no such thing of purgatory. It's man-made. It's made up. And you will never escape, regardless of what man's religion teaches today. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Who, in their right mind or even an insane mind, would take the mark after hearing of the consequences of doing so. Who would do that? Well, millions are, if not billions. Three separate angels flying through heaven, each with a different, distinct message, and you go, nah, cheap Hollywood tricks, those angels. Man, I'm following my man, the beast. I'm going wherever he goes. That's what's going to happen. And they end up that way because they had no fear of God. I hope we all know that no one ends up in hell because of their sin. They end up in hell because of the sin of a lifetime of rejecting Jesus, calling them to himself. Here at the final seconds of man's life on this earth, before God's final judgment, he's calling them. If you reject this final offer of love from God, it's like you've signed your own eternal death certificate and you will enter into the place of punishment with the devil. There's nothing good there. No one cast into the lake of fire will ever be able to accuse or blame God or say, hey, God, you never warned us for taking that beast. Oh, no, God was going to be on record. No, I, I told everyone. No one's going to stand before God and say, I didn't know. No, you will know. The worship of the beast or the taking of the mark will be a deliberate, rebellious act 
against God. Kind of like, you know, that Darwin fish, you know, when it first came out, it was very popular. That's like people deliberately blaspheming against God. Hey, they can still turn back to Jesus while they're still alive. But these here that take that mark, they can't turn back. No second chance. I hope we can see God's care and concern for the lost, my fellow believer, because as he is for them, he's that way for us too, his children. He wants the best for us. That's why he speaks certain things to our lives. That's why we encourage you all the time. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles at home. God wants to speak to you. He wants to sort out the world's messages because the world's messages are 24-7, seven days a week, and if all we come to is Sunday, we get an hour to get it all sorted out, that isn't enough. You've got to be in the Word at home so that God's Word can sort it out. It's critical. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus as God seeks to instruct those who are traveling through the tribulation with a big don't give up. These are the tribulation saints, those who waited too long to turn to Jesus. And so they, they gave their life to Jesus during the seven-year tribulation period. And God says to them, hey, don't give up. I believe it's safe to say if God says that to these, then he can say that to us as well. Don't give up. You're in a fight. You're in the fight of your lives. Get up and fight. Run to win. You got to run. Jesus talks about agonizing, trying to get in through the narrow gates. Hold on to Jesus. Love him with all that of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others the same way you already love yourself. That's God's commandments. See, if you're busy loving others the same way you already love yourself, you're not going to get turned sideways. You're going to make it to the finish line. Then I heard a voice. Verse 13, from heaven, saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. That would be present tense here. Key words, in the Lord. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Your death is coming. It's almost like the Holy Spirit, because they're going to have their Bibles in the, in the, during the tribulation period. They're going to be able to read about how it's all going to go down. And so here the, God's going to encourage them, hey, look, your death is coming. As the Spirit speaks to these born-again earth dwellers, hold on, says the Spirit, that they may receive rest from the labors and their works, just like ours. Follow on. See, verse 13, 12 and 13 will encourage the earth dwellers that are going to die for their faith to hold on till death. But there's a better way today. There's a better way to get to heaven than to die for your faith. See, today's the day of salvation. No one's promised you tomorrow. If you're outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ where he's the Lord of your life, because you've turned to him, and he called, he's the shot caller. And as you turn to him, he, he, the very spirit of God comes and dwells in you and forgives you and finishes you. And all of a sudden, everything, you start seeing things differently. Then you're in great shape. But if you're not... And today's the day. Because you may die tonight. You may die tomorrow. No one's promised you tomorrow. And this says here, last part of verse 13, I like this, and their works follow them. Church, whatever you do on this earth for Jesus, 
the giving of your life, the giving of money, the giving of resources, the giving of time to Jesus, they are awaiting you in heaven. Big amen if you understand that. Amen. Okay, only a few of you. Here, let me repeat that. I'm, gonna, I'm getting my hands clean right here. Whatever you do on this earth for Jesus, the giving of life, money, resources, and time, they are awaiting you in heaven. Big amen if you believe that. Amen. amen. Thank you. Okay, now my hands are clean. <laughs> See, all that we do for Jesus on this earth awaits us as an entrance into heaven. Simply put, little time here, and Paul writes about our time here as but a vapor in light of eternity. And whatever you do, whatever you put in that box, it's not to Calvary Chapel, no, it goes to Jesus and it goes to your account. Sure, they keep track of it so you can get a tie slip and get a donation, or a deductible donation, which is almost stripped away in our taxes. But it's recorded in heaven. However you serve here on this earth, the time that's put in, it gets placed in God's accounting system. It all has to be done for Jesus, though. If you go out and serve somewhere because you're a good-natured person, it's not for Jesus, I don't think you get any credit for that. It's got to be for Jesus. The only regrets you and I will have as we enter into heaven is what we did not do, not what we did for Jesus. Have a good day at work, bro. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden victor's crown rather than a crown of thorns, and in his hand a sharp sickle, as Jesus appears in this section. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Some commentators say, oh, this can't be Jesus because an angel is directing God. No, I don't have a problem with this. And so the angel cries out to him, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. Hope we can hear this. The game is over. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Because we've come to the end. This Greek word for ripe means it's drying up. You leave vegetables on plants too long, they start to dry up. That's what's happening here. The earth is past the point of salvation. No one can ever accuse God of not being patient or judging without a cause. And so we're past that point, and it's like, reap, reap now. <coughs> then another angel came out of the temple. It, and let me just say this. I couldn't find anybody commenting on that. So I don't know if that's Jesus reaping those who are his. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't say that. So I don't really know what's going on there. Nobody would comment on it. People comment in verse 17, though. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, all judgment here. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the wine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So, prior to the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God upon this earth, the, wor the world is going to experience a massive bloodbath. That's what we're reading of here. 
Th this word, fully ripe here, it's a different word from the dried up ripe in, uh, previously that we saw. This Greek word means that they are mature grapes, full of juice. They are plump. Like if they, if they go any longer, they're just going to explode. So this scene, for lack of better words, becomes a human smoothie because that's what's going to happen. If you have read ahead, you know judgment from this point is going to go without a break. It's just going to done. God's going to do his judgment. Then the battle, it's done. By the use of this word overly right, God's saying enough is enough. It is time. I'm not going to wait any longer. So the angel, angel thrusted his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city. Yeah, that's because out in the valley in the ghetto. And the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. This scene right here describes the valley of Megiddo filled with blood from the great battle of Armageddon that we're going to get to. We just haven't got there yet. Isaiah 63, Joel 3, Zechariah 14, Revelation 16, and chapter 19 is where we'll see the battle actually take place. So if you want to further study, go look those things up. The beast that we saw last week, he's going to establish his power both militarily and monetarily through the European community and the West. So we, does America show up? Yeah, we're going to be in the West coming to take on the kings of the East under the direction of the beast. So, you know, that's our part. That's we're, going to be, we're going to play here. And the people of the world will be saying, who is able to make war with the beast? But the nations of the East, Japan, China, India, who knows who else? They're going to launch an attack on the West as they come across the dried up river Euphrates. We will meet in the valley of Megiddo. How do we know that? Because God's already said that's where the battle is going to take place. And so the west and the east are going to meet in the valley of Megiddo, and they are going to be killing each other like crazy. But when Jesus comes back, the east and the west, like all good crazy people, are going to become allies and join forces, and they're going to seek to take on Jesus. Want to guess who wins? <laughs> If the 1,600 furlongs in verse 20 is lineal miles, then the active battlefield will be 180 to 200 miles long. That's a lot of blood. Now, some guys have a problem with the, that valley being full of blood. Like, how is that possible? Well, it's possible they've never been around cattle when they've been butchered. Anybody been around cattle when they've been butchered? One, few. So we're not all city slickers. When you butcher cattle, there is a lot of blood on the ground, like a lot. Some come in on horses and donkeys, 15 gallons of blood apiece. Some, maybe on, from India, coming on elephants, that's their tanks. An, an elephant has 65 gallons of blood in it. That's a lot of blood. Plus all the humans on foot, 1.3 gallon a person. You add all that up, that's a lot of blood. I say, and I could be wrong, you know, I, I could say this, but no one really know until we actually get there, and at that point, we're going to be coming on horses as Jesus' backup. It's a joke. He doesn't need our help. But we're going to be coming with him on horses, it says. And at that point, we'll see how much blood there was. But I think as I look at this, and I've seen, you know, cows get slaughtered, and there's blood, literally, you know, you know, it's not one, like four or five. I mean, there's blood everywhere. I mean, it's just running like, a, like the rain. I can see how 
The blood could be three to four deep up to the horse's bridle here. Maybe not through the entire 180 miles of the Valley of Megiddo, but certainly in places. You think of all that blood that's going to get shed. God's wrath and indignation shall come. We're, we just read about it. And either way, all of us are going to get bloody one way or the other. You can drown in the bloodbath of Armageddon in the near future, or you can be covered by the blood of Jesus today. I mean, the choice is obvious, isn't it? Last week in chapter 13, it looked like the beast and the false prophet were winning. But at the end of this chapter, it is clear who wins and who loses. So whose team are you on today? Are you on God's team? Are you God's kid that he's watching over, encouraging you, blessing you, guiding you through this life to where you can become the best of whatever you are, whatever it is? Whether you're a grocery store manager, a home theater installer, whatever, whatever it is, God wants to make you the best of what you are. And if we're God's kids, we just allow him to do that. But if you're outside of that, if you've never turned to Jesus, then you know what? God has a record of everything you've ever done wrong. Your sin is going to separate you from God. But it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, that's why Jesus came and died, so that mankind could move back into a right relationship with God. But you've got to turn to Jesus. You've got to take yourself off the throne of your life as the authority of your life, and you've got to turn to God and allow him to become the authority of your life. And yeah, you'll change, no doubt about it. You'll change from, from the bad, you'll change for the good. You'll change. The Spirit of God will come and take up residency in your life. Old things will pass away. All of a sudden, everything becomes clear and colorful. You'll change. You'll, you'll change from being self-centered to other-centered. You'll change from doing something only because you're going to get it back, something else back, to doing it because God has so changed your heart. Because you realize how much you've been forgiven. He takes everything. Everything from my past, my present, and my future. It's all been put away by the blood of the Lamb. And yeah, you'll love. The Bible says to him or her who was forgiven much, less much. So yeah, you'll change. The trials, they don't go away. But the good news is you don't go through trials by yourself anymore. You go through them with, with the creator of the universe. God Almighty. The one who gave his life so that you could have this relationship with him. But it's going to cost you your life. But he's going to give you his life in exchange. It's a total upgrade. Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives.